Sometime ago, when I was a young, young man, we were uh, told of a story of a fella named uh, Natan Sharansky, Anatoly Sharansky. He was a Soviet Jew living in the Soviet Union at the time, and uh, he was something of a dissident. He was he was an activist for human rights, and for this reason, the Soviet Union at that point, violating almost all of them, uh, opposed him such to the point that they put him in prison. Uh, Sharansky spent nine years in a Russian gulag, uh, paying for what they called high, tri high uh, crimes of treason, and being accused of being a U.S. spy, the only thing that he had all nine years was a well-worn copy of the book of Psalms that was given to him uh, by his wife, Avila. Sharansky was not a particularly religious man, not a believer in Jesus Christ, not really a student of the scriptures at all, but he found in the book of Psalms a language for the kind of tormenting that he lived in. Multiple times they took his book of Psalms away, and multiple times he would go on hunger strikes, and then they would give it back to him. The worst year of his life was in a small six-foot-by-six-foot cell. No light. For an entire year, he was kept in solitary confinement and hoped that it might break him. It did not break him because, he said later, his life was narrated for him by something that was bigger than his life. And so, uh, those of us that are old enough to remember the day when the Russians made a deal to, to, to trade Sharansky for others in exchange... An official car drove him to the Russian airport, and from there they drove to the end of the runway where there was a car waiting for him, and they would fly him out of the Soviet and into free country. And in his book, Fear No Evil, he describes that moment when he was just minutes away from freedom. He said as he got out of the car, he said to the driver, where's my book of Psalms? And the driver said in a pretty intellectual tone, you have been given everything that was permitted you. Sharansky said when he said it, I fell down in the snow and I said it again, where's my book of Psalms? He said, you've received everything you're going to get. He said, from that moment, I started screaming in the snow, I'm not going anywhere until you give me my book of Psalms. And at that moment, one of the leaders went back to the car and came forth with this dog-leafed, well-worn copy of the Psalms. He took it, he got on the plane, and as the plane was leaving the ground, he fulfilled a vow. Sharansky said, I promised God that on the day of my freedom, I would read from Psalm 30. It read, I extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and not let my enemies rejoice over me. 
Oh, Lord, my God, I cried out to you, and you healed me. You brought me up from the grave. You preserved me from going down into the pit. Throughout the centuries, there have been thousands, if not millions of Christians in every nation that have turned to the book of Psalms when they were in distress. Now, I realize for some of you, this is not your favorite book of the Bible. I realize that for some of you, these are poems that don't rhyme, so you don't like them. And I know that the psalmist repeats himself all the time, all the time, all the time. And if you're an intellectual, you are going, I get it, move on. But can you at least appreciate that People in every nation, in every imaginable circumstance, have found language for their lives in the book of Psalms. They don't know how to interpret what's happening to them right now. All they can see are the circumstances, but they can't see the narrative that is behind. They can't interpret these things, and the Psalms provide that kind of language. So whether you are terrified or maybe you're just full of rage right now, maybe you're suffering from some injustice and you want to strike back, and better yet, strike out at God for not acting more quickly. Maybe you're feeling especially reverent right now. Maybe you're feeling this is a high time, a period of ecstasy. Maybe it feels for you that this is a season of distress or alienation from the community. Maybe you feel you are falsely charged. People are looking down their noses at you. You will probably find somewhere in the Psalms those very feelings. And herein lies the power of them. The Psalms our sanctified emotion. He says, in an academic community. Intellectuals tend to appeal to everything through the intellect. So the second an intellectual picks up the psalm, they start exegeting it, which in my opinion is a terrible mistake. Psalms are songs. They are to be heard first. You lead with your feelings not with your emotion, not with your intellect. It's your emotion that pulls you through the psalm. So I encourage you, if you can, to turn the intellect down, not off. Later on, you can look up the lyrics and tear them apart. But if you end up dissecting the song so well that you understand everything in it, but in the process, the song has died, you've become a scholar and not a saint. The goal is the effect of these things on our lives, not just our grasp of them. Yes? 
Still there? So dive in. Because you may very well be in a season that resonates beautifully with one of these psalms. But as you go, I warn you, you are going to run into some pretty rough, crass language. Nothing is off color, but he is going to say things from his emotion, from his gut, that goes literally all over the spectrum. Therein lies the beauty of them. If you can stay with it, he will express everything you're feeling, and then just very naturally, he'll come back to shore. You don't have to save him. You don't have to counsel him, fix him, give him advice. Just let him go. He'll go out into the deep, say rash things, and then he'll swing around, and the current of emotion will pull him back to safe ground. Yes, are you still there? So brace yourself, but of all things, dive in and listen, don't just read. That said, the last piece before I move on is um, uh, I have found it helpful now to use the Psalms to pray. Do you remember how we talked about um, there is a table with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit added, and maybe a fourth chair where you are invited to come and sit. So for some of you, you've written or you've stopped me, and you've said, man, that has changed the way that I think about praying right now. I envision myself at a table with the, tr my, this is overwhelming. But have you ever wondered, when I get there, what do I say? And, and, and more than that, when he starts talking back to me, what does he say? And how would I know that that was his voice and not just my own thoughts? Well, the Psalms provide language for that dialogue. So what I've started to do is to take the Psalms and line them out like lines in a play. And some words I've just assigned to God. It's okay, you're going to say these words. I'm going to say these. So here, here's a short snippet from Psalm 27 that we're going to look at today. Can you get that on the screen or not? We are having, there it is, right there. Uh, so God would say to me at the table, Steve, the Lord is your light and your salvation. And then I would say, yeah, whom shall I fear? He would say, the Lord is your fortress, the stronghold of your life. And I would say, yes, yeah, so why should I be afraid? When evil people come to devour me and enemies and foes attack me, then the Lord says, nodding already, that's right, they will stumble and fall. And there's this dialogue now going back and forth. So maybe you'll play with that a little bit. When you get home, you'll take one of the Psalms, maybe your favorite, and line that thing out and says, what would this look like if it took place at the table with God and his people? Let then get started in Psalm 27. Uh, when I was a kid, I was impressed with the life of David. He's just seemed to have it all to well, except for the Bathsheba thing. I, I grant that was something of a hiatus, but <laughs> pretty much, I mean, the rest of his life, I mean, he was the whole package. He could fight, 
he could play music. I mean, how many musicians do you know want to ride up a posse and take over a city? That's David. So I was drawn to this kind of ability that he had. He, he had enemies, and there were two that I noticed as I read through the book of Samuel. One of them was Goliath, and the other one was Saul. And they are not the same enemy. Goliath is a giant imposing figure from the outside that you unexpectedly run into in the valley. You show up one day to feed your brothers and he's already in the valley mouthing off, challenging someone to come out and fight him. And the closer to him you get, the smaller you start to feel. Now that you're almost upon him, you don't like your chances at all. The dude is nine foot six inches. He's got to be six, seven hundred pounds. The tip of his spear, this is the tip, people, is 15 pounds. And he's chucking that thing. And you, 12 year old boy, I don't like your chances. But you know what David does? He walks right at him and says unflinchingly, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will cut off your head and feed your body to the birds. I'm like, man, now you are talking smack. <laughs> but it isn't just smack, it's prophecy. He says, and then everyone in the world will know that there is a God. And that he is the ruler of Israel. I look at that and I go, man, I want some of that. Those of you familiar with David's story knows that that battle ends very well. He does exactly what he said he would do. Knocks him down, cuts off his head, feeds the body. who actually nailed the body on the wall of, uh, of uh, Goliath's hometown. Bet that went well. And then he went back to his homeland, and Saul, the king, noticed this. And he invited, the better word is ordered, David to move inside the palace. And on the opening day, when the town is gathered for a festival, and David is hoisting the Stanley Cup, well, something like that, the crowd is shouting, Saul, his thousands, David, his ten thousands. And Saul gets jealous. And from that day on, he becomes an internal, quiet, subtle, undermining enemy. That's another kind of enemy. One of them's in the valley. When you see him, you turn and run like mad. The other one lives with you. And every day undermines you subtly. He discourages you. He's jealous. And your reaction to Saul is never to run, not at first. Your reaction to Saul is to start adjusting your personality. Because the climate that you live in every day is causing you to be so self-focused 
All of a sudden, when you live with Saul, you start getting afraid that you're going to be rejected or put out or cast away. And you start worrying too much about impressing people. You try to please people. You start second-guessing every decision you make because someone out there might be critical of me. It's fear. It's still fear, but it's a different kind of fear. It's not this big, intimidating presence. It's this internal erosion of your confidence. and You can't leave it. And still, David stands up to the pressure. He refuses to take vengeance when he could have. And I read that and I think to myself, man, I wish I could do that. How do you take stuff like that on without it distorting the kind of person you are? Then I hit Psalm 27. And I discovered that the secret is the self-talk. The most important voice is not the one in the valley taunting you. It's the one inside your heart talking to you. That's the one you're most likely to believe. And the problem is we tell ourselves wrong things whenever we confront our enemies. We get afraid, and when we get afraid, we go into all of this kind of internal self-talk, and it just twists the way we respond and live among people. Am I close? What don't you do anymore? because you're afraid. What might you try to do if you weren't so afraid? Oh, I'm not afraid of anything. I bet you've lived with a low-grade fear so long you've developed a whole personality around it and now you call it normal. What would you do if that thing that intimidates you, that undermines your personality, were gone? Well, the secret is how you talk to yourself. So in Psalm 27, we get inside David's head. Now listen to him, talk to himself. You got your Bibles? Yeah, let's use them. He says, here's his self-talk. The Lord is my light in my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Oh, it's a powerful image. Pause. Strongholds were the fortresses that were back deep in the city, usually on the highest place, usually somewhere near the temple. And so when the city was under attack, the army would retreat until they 
put themselves in the stronghold. Once you were in the stronghold, the enemy could not get into it. You were familiar with every square inch. You could see every street and every gate in the city. And now with more confidence, you could fight your way out. And the psalmist says, Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. When things attack me from the outside, I back into the tower that is Yahweh. Oh, and I can see everything in the city from there. I can see the gates and the streets and I start to feel my confidence rise and I'm ready to fight now because I'm standing in the tower called Yahweh. Oh, that's a good word. You haven't said anything yet. I'll say it for you. Man, that's a good word. Now now watch what happens. Watch what happens. Standing in the stronghold, he starts talking about the enemies outside. He says, when people start attacking me, when the army surrounds me, when war breaks out against me, I'm not going to be afraid. Even then, I will be confident. (laughs) You see that? You see what he's saying? As bad as it's getting on the outside, it's getting even better on the inside. The more you dial it up, the more I double down. That's the first three verses. Then he says... One thing I ask of the Lord, and that's all I want. And I'm thinking, oh yeah, I'm thinking Vita. I'm thinking, yeah, let's go, man. Tell him what you want. And I'm expecting him to say, Lord, my enemies, I want to be safe and secure. I want to be vindicated because I have done nothing wrong. I want justice. Oh, how I want justice. 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 How we cry for that. It's not what he says. He says, there's one thing I want and this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of my God all the days of my life and that I may gaze upon his beauty. Now watch this. Then when the day of trouble comes, he will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle. He will exalt my head above the head of my enemies. He will set me on a high place. And that's strange. The three things he could have asked for, security, vindication, and justice, but did not ask for, he got anyway when he sought the face of Yahweh. Note to self, when you're afraid, of your enemies. It's not because your enemies are too close. It's because your God is too far. You're still playing to your enemies. 
psalmist says, never mind your enemies. Think about your God. More of your security depends on that than on anything else that you keep trusting. That's a powerful word for me. But watch, here's where the song goes crazy on you. Right about verse eight or nine, he starts talking like someone who isn't quite so sure anymore. He says in verse eight, I will seek your face, O Lord. But in verse nine, he says, do not hide your face from me. Do not forsake me, O Lord. Do not abandon me. Even if my father and mother abandon me, do not abandon me and do not turn me over to my foes so they'll do with me. I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, man, this is not, how is it that a person who is holed up inside of the stronghold that is God should all of a sudden have all these doubts? I mean, I thought this was David coming down the valley with Goliath. I thought this was a man with swagger who was ready for the fight. And now I've got this guy whose interior is crumbling. He ain't so sure of himself anymore. One moment he's saying he will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle. And the next moment he's saying, don't hide your face from me. They don't sound like the same guy. In fact, some people have said it's not. These are two different songs slammed together. And then the thought occurred to me, both of these emotions happen in the human heart all the time, don't they? One moment, you're full of bravado. You're aggressive. God is my salvation. You go, God. <laughs> and then the next moment, you start to wonder if I still have so many enemies and things are still so uncertain right now, maybe God is my enemy. And you're not ready for that. That's when the... Psalm occurs to me to be David's singing affirmations about things that he hopes are true, even in moments when he is not so sure. It turns out these are not statements made in bravado at all. These are statements where David is talking to himself. He's not talking to you. He's not saying you should trust in God like I trust in God. What he's saying is, I trust in God, don't I? Yes, I think. This is where the psalm starts to speak to us. Here's what it says. First, if you find yourself this morning living in this place of spiritual ambivalence, I don't know whether to praise God or cuss. 
I don't know whether I should fear God or whether I should just be afraid of him. I can't tell whether he's for me or against me. And so some of you this morning, you're still waiting to see how your life works out before you decide to say these things. For you, the jury's out. Is God my salvation? I think so, but we'll see. And once he comes through, well, then I'll sing this as a testimony. Why don't you sing it now as a self-fulfilling prophecy? <laughs> Why don't you say, my life is, dis is determined by the word of God. It is not determined by my circumstances. I do not interpret scripture through my circumstances. How, why would I do this? They're changing every third day. No, no. I interpret my circumstances through the only thing I know for sure, and that is the word of God. Yes? So you start there. You sit in the middle of your ambivalence, and you just say, the Lord is my light and salvation. Oh, I don't feel like it. Too bad. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. You need to say these things to yourself. Second, some of you this morning are fighting fear. Some of you, it's the fear of a Goliath. It's some event, a person that has come walking into your life with this big imposing obstacle and you look at that and you say, I am no match for that. Some of you are facing exams, whether for the academy or for your phys physical body, and you worry about it. Some of you have heard from the doctor in the last couple of weeks that the news is not good. Some of you have been to court and the judgment did not come down on your side. This is the fear of Goliath. I don't know what to do with that. I can't face that. I am no match for that. Others of you, it's more the fear of Saul. You live with people or you work in a place where things are always changing. And you think to yourself, my goodness, could we just have three days that go the same? You work for people and it feels to you like they're undermining you, but they're not saying anything. But every time you leave their room, you have less confidence, not more. Why is that, you say? And it starts to distort your personality. You second guess every decision you make. You worry about impressing people that you could never impress. You know this, but you can't stop trying. It's the fear of a Saul. Here's the word of the Lord. What happens inside of you is way more important than what's happening outside of you. Never forget that. In between a stimulus and a response is a little space like that. And in that space lies your freedom and power to choose 
your response. And in your choices lie your growth. So you cannot determine how good of a life you have by what's happening on the outside. You have to set that yourself by determining what's happening inside. Are you with me? And what's happening inside is always moving between two poles, fear and faith. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's fear. And the opposite of fear is not self-confidence, it's trust. And so when you leave one, you're headed for the other. Inside of you, the compass is always moving. Who is going to make sure that your life is good? And you will move either between God will do this or I will do this. And I am not in control. Here's my question. What is it that you fear more than anything else? Maybe you ought to have that conversation with somebody. Not lunch, it'll ruin lunch, but <laughs> we've had that in my house. What's the one thing you fear more than anything else? Second question, how do you know that won't happen? Is it won't happen because I always prepare? then preparation is your stronghold. And your stronghold will become your God. Is it that'll never happen because I have too many resources stored away? Well, then your resources are your stronghold and your stronghold will be your God. What is it that you're afraid could happen, and how do you know that it won't? Last question. What do you want God to do? That only God can do. Yeah, if you say, oh, I don't really know. <laughs> Your situation's worse than we thought. I think if you'd think about it, you'll know. Why don't you pray that? Why don't you pray that? When you know what it is you need God to do that only God can do, why don't you just start right there in the middle of your fear and say, God, 
I believe, I think, and pray from the bottom of your heart.